This is WMNF Tampa. Today on True Talk, we'll replay an important episode from a couple of weeks ago ahead of tomorrow's expected ruling on South Africa's genocide lawsuit against Israel in the International Court of Justice. Other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine. Welcome to True Talk on WMNF 88.5 with Ahmed and Summer. Summer, welcome to your own show. We have, uh, today is the new year. Happy new year. Uh, happy new year to you, Ahmed. Hope it's going to be a year full of uh, blessings and peace, inshallah, God willing. Well, there's uh, we're, there's not much peace happening right now in Gaza and Palestine and the Middle East. And mm-hmm. um, as the song said, Palestine needs uh, freedom. And Palestine needs our love. On today's program, we're going to have special guests uh, that will help us break down what's happening there. Uh, yes, so we're going to be here talking to Huwaida Arraf Ahmed, who is a human uh, civil rights attorney. She's also the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement, which is known as ISM. If we have time, we can ask her about it. But uh, she's also former chair of the Free uh, Gaza Movement, which I think they would uh, uh, go on boats and try to break the siege on Gaza uh, and um, she's a practicing lawyer uh, in uh, Michigan. Good morning, Hawaida. Good to have you on True Talk. Good morning, Samar and Ahmed. Thank you for having me. Uh, Hawaida, we're going to be talking about, because you are a lawyer, about the um, South Africa invoking the genocide uh, convention. And before we start, because it seems like a very um, important issue to talk about, but I want to begin by you telling us what is the meaning of the term uh, genocide, especially from a legal point of view. Yes. It's a good place to start. When we talk about the genocide and now in the context of pursuing uh, the crime of genocide, legally we look to the Genocide Convention, Mm -hmm. which was really the first human rights treaty uh, passed by the General Assembly of the United Nations in 1948, and it came into um, 
it, it, it came into being in 1951. And it defines genocide as any of five specific acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group. And those five acts committed would be killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mentally harm, mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, or number five, forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Any of those five acts committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a group would qualify as genocide. And we can say Israel has been committing a number of these for a long time, not just since October 7, but many, including myself, long before this didn't say this is a genocide because there's an element of intent legally that has to be proven and that it's not, it's very hard to prove intent, but specifically after October 7th, Israeli leaders, uh, military and political leaders have been very uh, vocal and clear about their intent. People would know about uh, the first two conditions that you mentioned, which is the bombing and the killing. But the other aspects, for instance, uh, I maybe the targeting of hospitals, because now the whole healthcare system in uh, Gaza collapsed. I have a friend whose father has uh, blood pressure, very normal for a 60 years old to have a blood pressure. And he's telling me my father ran out of blood pressure medication. And I think I am going to lose my father because of very, very, very simple illness that in any other country can be easily treated by taking uh, a pill. Could destruction of hospitals be part of this plan and be including as part of the genocide as well as uh, limiting the amount of food that is entering Gaza because the news now that people are are starving and some of them, uh, I'm not sure how accurate this is, are really resorting to eating stray cats in the street. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the news it just gets worse and worse out of Gaza. But your question is a very good one. And yes, all of these things, you know, the the attacks on hospitals and the destruction of hospitals is a can be a war crime if if the hospitals have not lost their protected a status in a time of armed conflict. Now, Israel has been telling the world and trying to say that the Palestinian hospitals have lost their protective status because they were used as military bases, etc. cetera. Uh, that has all but been debunked. And Israel has not put forth any kind of credible, believable evidence that Palestinian hospitals that Israel has systematically attacked have lost their protected status under international law. And so all of these attacks on hospitals, uh, I believe legally would meet the definition of war crimes. But in the context also of genocide, yes, because that is a, a condition when you deplete 
uh, or totally eradicate mm -hmm. a population's ability to access the medical care that they need, that mm -hmm. is inflicting on a group a condition of life that is calculated to bring about its destruction. Uh, but even before Israel's, you know, um, assault, uh, the, the, the uh, if you will, escalation of its assault on Gaza after October 7, there is a, an argument to be made that Israel was in, inflicting these conditions of life on the whole of the occupied Palestinian territory, but especially Gaza, long before October 7th, that could also meet the definition of um, these acts committed in, in the commission of genocide. And we are going back to even December, uh, sorry, uh, 2009, when a commission was uh, assembled to uh, investigate Israel's assault on Gaza in 2008-2009. So there was a UN commission uh, put together and that commission found that amongst the crimes committed by Israel uh, was likely the, client, the crime of persecution, uh, specifically with, its, with regard to its policy towards Gaza. Now, persecution is a crime against humanity. And recently also the international uh, reports by the, uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have found similar that Israel is committing the crime against humanity of persecution when it, it, persecuting an entire civilian population with regard to its policy specifically uh, towards Gaza, but it can also extend to other parts of the occupied Palestinian territory. We know there's been a complete closure. We know that they have been uh, rationing the food, the amount of food that gets in. We know that they have been preventing Palestinians from bringing in certain uh, supplies that they need to rebuild to their infrastructure that Israel has systematically destroyed. Israel has um, destroyed Palestinians' economy, their ability to really uh, make a life and, and, and all of that prior to October 7th has only been exacerbated. And if we look, I know you wanted to talk about the South Africa application to the International Court of Justice. Many right. of these, many of these are detailed in that very uh, specific and well put together application. Isn't this also called the collective uh, punishment? And also, for instance, uh, when we uh, or some people try to talk some sense into the people uh, in Israel, they say, well, uh, they elected Hamas and therefore uh, they are guilty uh, maybe by association because, you know, they voted for Hamas and they this is the government that rules them and they are responsible for it. How do you address that from a legal point of view? Like, what do you tell the international community when they blame the victims uh, because they elected this body of governors? I mean, it absolutely is is ridiculous. And that is certainly the, de the definition of collective punishment when you impose punishment on someone who did not commit uh, the crime, if you will. And the the problem is this has become so normalized in terms of Israel's um, and the thinking of a large number of if not the majority of Israeli society, because that's what the Israeli government has been doing for years 
and decades uh, when it comes to its policies of uh, closing off entire uh, towns and villages, uh, destroying Palestinian homes because uh, someone that it accuses of an attack on Israel lived in that home. Um, when they can't find someone they're looking for, they will uh, arrest the person's relatives uh, and and certainly its policy on Gaza, its closure policy was a, an extreme form of collective punishment, which has repeatedly been called out by human rights organization, mm -hmm. which has repeatedly been called unlawful by human rights reports, uh, UN rapporteurs on, on the situation in the occupied Palestinian territory. The problem is uh, you will find the, this policy being condemned largely and widely by the United Nations and by human rights organizations, but no mechanism implemented to hold Israel accountable or to have Israel face any kind of repercussion for its continued and, and systematic violations of human rights, international human rights and humanitarian law. Collective punishment is a war crime, is a war crime. We've been seeing it for decades and um, you know, people are maybe noticed it more starkly when mm -hmm. the Israeli defense minister announced on October 9th that they were cutting off all food, water, electricity and fuel to the entire civilian population of the Gaza Strip and he called them human animals, called Palestinians human animals, but cutting off food and water, the essentials of life. Again, this goes back to one of the, the acts committed under the genocide convention that can qualify as genocide. Um, a little bit more extreme form of what Israel has been doing for so long. For our radio listeners who are listening to us live, this is True Talk on WMNF uh, 88.5. We're speaking, Summer and I are speaking to Hawaii Da'arof. She's a Palestinian-American human rights attorney and activist and the co-founder of the International Solidarity Movement. Um, speaking about the South Africa's petition or complaint or lawsuit against Israel in the International Court of Justice, which now Israel has announced that they'll defend themselves in court, which uh, may take years. What is that case about and um, is it binding? Uh, yes. So before I answer that, let me say there's been some kind some confusion, I think, between the International Court of Justice and the International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. The International Court of Justice is the judicial arm of the United Nations. So it is also called the World Court. It is different from the International Criminal Court. The International Court of Justice has its origins back. It goes back to the 1920s. There was something called the Permanent Court of International Justice, and that was a, a part of the League of Nations. And then when the United Nations uh, came about, it was transformed to the International Court of Justice operating since 1946. And all countries that are signatory to the Charter of the United Nations, so all member countries of the International Court of Justice. The International Criminal Court was established much later, didn't come into force until 2002. And that is a, a court that a country generally has to be uh, signatory to what's called the Rome Statute, the founding document of the International Court of Justice in order to be uh, come under its jurisdiction, although there are other ways and, and Palestine and Israel in the crimes that 
uh, we are alleging Israel's committing in the occupied Palestinian territory now do fall under the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. If we have time, I can get into why. But what we see there is that ICC, the International Criminal Court, unfortunately is subject to a lot of political games and political maneuvering and often uh, as we see and as have as has been charged operates really under the pressure of its funders which are almost exclusively western countries and therefore even though the international court of justice is investigating israel for war crimes and dozens if not hundreds of of information, petitions, uh, facts have been submitted to the ICC about war crimes being committed in Gaza and the rest of the occupied Palestinian territory. It has yet to take any kind of action. Right. Uh, and that is a problem. The International Court of Justice, now the uh, South Africa and uh, Israel, obviously, both UN countries, and they are both signatory to the Genocide Convention. Uh, that I mentioned at the top of the show. The Genocide Convention does have a provision in it where states can uh, take other states to the court over allegations that it is committing the crime of genocide. And that's what South Africa has done when it invoked uh, the Genocide Convention. It submitted a a petition to the International Court of Justice. It's an 84-page document that is meticulously detailed and very well sourced. Uh, and uh, Israel is, so, like we said, subject to the jurisdiction of the court and announced recently that it will defend itself in front of the court. I guess there could be the option of it uh, boycotting the court, but mm. uh, that certainly wouldn't, uh, would not look good for Israel. And this, uh, we're expecting a hearing next week, uh, on um, January 11th and 12th, the court announced that it will hear arguments. Now, these these kinds of cases, as with really most cases, generally take a long time, years. But South Africa asked for provisional measures, protective measures to be taken to protect the Palestinian people. And these this is an urgent request. And it asked for kind of an expedited uh, hearing. And so we will the the court sitting on uh, January 11th and 12th will be considering the arguments brought before it uh, in terms of whether provisional measures to protect the Palestinian people are warranted. And we can also expect a decision to come down fairly quickly, again, because this is considered a, an emergency where action needs to be taken to protect uh to protect people. I mean, so far, Israel has just been acting as if they're above the law. The laws, international laws don't apply to them. The UN uh, measures and conventions don't apply to them. And it's uh, to so many people's dismay that they continue to use this excuse or this justification that Israel is just defending itself or has a right to defend itself, meanwhile committing so many atrocities um, are you surprised by that, you know, that Israel is just acting with impunity, that it, they seem to be unstoppable when it comes to committing these crimes and continuing to use the um, events of October 7th as a justification to basically uh, eliminate, you know, with the excuse that they're going after Hamas, but in reality, they are killing so many civilians, uh, destroying uh, almost all the infrastructure in Gaza. 
Um, is that a surprise to you? I mean, you've been observing and following Israel for a long time and the occupation. Yeah, unfortunately, I wish I could say it was it, it is a surprise. It is not because um, anyone who has been concerned or remotely kind of following uh, what is happening, what has been happening to the Palestinian people at the hands of Israel for decades, it knows that Israel does act that like it is above the law. And it has been able to be above the law because it has had the United States kind of protecting it in the international arena. As the United States consistently throwing its weight around the United Nations in order to prevent certain uh, measures and actions to be taken against uh, Israel for its repeated human rights violations and vetoing UN Security Council resolutions, again, intending to hold uh, Israel accountable. Uh, as we've seen recently, the United Nations, uh, sorry, the United States uh, basically blocking any effort at the United Nations in the Security Council from uh, taking action again or passing a resolution, even calling on Israel. The Security Council resolution would be a binding one to um, halt its aggression and to allow in humanitarian aid. So Israel has been allowed to be above the law because the United States has enabled it. Unfortunately, while we are, you know, international human rights lawyers are constantly pressing for the uh, fair implementation and the equal implementation across the board of international human rights and humanitarian law, what we've seen and what has been clear is that these you know, more powerful nations tend to put themselves above the law and this international legal order that we talked about that, to be honest, was established by these powerful Western nations um, to really serve their purposes uh, it, it continues to be used in that way where we see, uh, you know, lesser powerful countries, African countries, what they call kind of um, the, the, the global south, right. these countries being held to certain standards that Western countries put themselves above. And that cannot stay. That we are working on, against. And this will be really, I think, the ultimate test if Israel is allowed to get away with this. And that is a complete blow to the international legal order that we talk about. And if the United States continues to be behind this effort to allow Israel to get away with the most heinous of crimes, which is genocide, then there is nothing for the United States to to hold on to or to say when it comes to respecting uh, respecting law or human rights. Or do you, any, do you have any predictions on what's going to happen at the ICJ? Do you think the ICJ will actually uh, not be politicized and have a fair ruling? The fact that Israel seems confident that they'll defend themselves there. Does that worry you that they may be playing politics behind the scenes? I'm sure that there is politics behind the scenes. That is for sure. You know, over the last uh, couple of decades, there have been other efforts to hold Israel accountable in international courts. And Israel and the United States have played politics, put pressure on countries to alter their own domestic, uh, what's called universal jurisdiction laws. Uh, many countries have these universal jurisdiction laws, which allow them to assume jurisdiction over uh, certain perpetrators of the most heinous of, of crimes. 
and Palestinians have tried to achieve justice in these various courts, uh, but political pressure have forced these countries to change their own internal laws to kind of exclude Israel. Uh, I think that will be changing in terms of the International Court of Justice. You know, this, uh, what South Africa has done has been done before, but in very limited circumstances. We have uh, the Gambia, which instituted proceedings uh, against Myanmar for its treatment of the Rohingya. And we have uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina's uh, actions against Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Now, those applications were not as as detailed as what we have in South Africa's applications. So that is to say that South Africa has put forth a very strong application, which if if there is no political meddling, I believe that at least we will get uh, swift uh, a swift ruling in terms of provisional measures that need to be uh, instituted. And those measures, uh, South Africa has listed first and foremost is for Israel to uh, cease its aggression uh, against the Gaza Strip. So, in other words, a, a ceasefire. Uh, I, I I do believe that the International Court of Justice is less subject to kind of the political pressures. And we do have the, the president of the court right now, who is a an American, American citizen. Yeah, for, former uh, State Department bureaucrat. I, that, I, I think that alone will not be able to halt uh, mm. anything. And I do, I, I am hopeful, actually. In okay. many other places, we have not been hopeful, but I am ho- hopeful. But the situation in Gaza, as we've been talked about, is so dire with extreme now severe hunger being reported and disease and nonstop bombing. So it cannot, a decision cannot come soon enough. And then we do have, unfortunately, the possibility that Israel could just ignore. So it would be a binding decision, but also... Who's going to implement it? UN Security Council resolutions are also binding and Israel stands in violation of dozens of UN Security Council resolutions. So, but that all said, you know, that will continue to just put Israel more exposed to the world that it is a a pariah state. And if the United States continues to support Israel at all costs, that might be just the final blow to all U.S. credibility because a decision by the court that um, there is a risk of genocide here and you need provisional measures. This imposes on all countries signatory to the Genocide Convention. That's 153 states, including Israel, but imposes upon them an obligation to take measures to prevent a genocide. So in practice, this would mean the U.S. should stop sending weapons to Israel. Right. Uh, speaking of credibility, and I'm going to turn it over to Summer in after this question, uh, Hawaii, uh, you live in Michigan. I want to just shift gears to the United States. Uh, you live in Michigan. You actually ran for Congress before as a Democrat. And now the credibility of the Democrats is on the line, especially President Biden, as he runs for re-election. Michigan is known to be a swing state. There's a large uh, Arab Muslim population, many Palestinians and other Arabs and Muslims that live there. Um, what's the Muslim community, Arab community feeling as far as um, uh, Joe Biden's response to what's happening in Gaza and his chances of be- being reelected? Are they going to support him? What are you going to do as a Democrat who ran for office 
and how are others uh, reacting to what's happening, the president's handling and the White House handling of um, the genocide in Gaza right now? Well, the the Arab-Palestinian Muslim community, as well as many allies, uh, progressives, people that care about human rights, have all expressed dismay at uh, President Biden and this administration's handling uh, of what has been happening and its unbridled support for Israel's aggression, as well as the silence of most other Democrats. And we've appealed repeatedly to the administration, and these appeals have been uh, have fallen really on deaf ears, which has proven to uh, proven to us, if not to the majority of the American people. I mean, the majority of Democrats, seventy to eighty percent across the country, support a ceasefire. A majority of the American people support a ceasefire, and yet this president is ignoring it all, uh, and therefore he cannot count on the support of those who previously supported him, myself included, I did vote for Biden, not not too willingly, but that was kind of the option if we didn't want uh, another four years of Trump. And he has gone just beyond anything that we've ever uh, thought could be possible in, in enabling and funding, actively supporting this genocide. So he cannot, not only can he not count on support and the votes that actually won him Michigan, we have enough votes in Michigan to um, to make sure that uh, Biden doesn't, doesn't win here. And that so has been the declared position of many uh, Arab, Palestinian, Muslim organizations, individuals, and many, many others as well. And we're looking to at options in terms of supporting third party candidates and other uh, efforts to make sure that the person who supported the genocide of the Palestinian people does not get another term in office. Well, I know that you have uh, to leave, but as we speak, actually, I'm looking at my Twitter feed and I can see uh, a group of protesters demonstrating in D.C. going to deliver petitions to some embassies, asking them to join South, South Africa World Court's case against Israel. And I am reading some reports that says the global coalition pushes for countries to back South Africa at World Court against Israel. Can non-governmental institutions help? Because I'm looking here. So, for instance, there is um, uh, many American groups, uh, many uh, foreign groups, many, for instance, African-American groups. So for our people who are interested in, in like telling people about uh, this issue, because you mentioned that countries can invoke the convention. Can uh, can nonprofits, can organizations uh, all over the world, like the Lawyers Guild, for instance, in Egypt or in America, help in any way in in pressuring countries or in pressuring this convention to be a reality and more effective? Uh, they organizations, I think, have been doing an amazing job in terms of mobilizing in the areas that they can and joining in coalitions to create the kind of pressure on different areas of of lo- local government and uh, nationally and internationally. And that has all been important in terms of the court specifically. There is a an effort. Uh, basically a grassroots effort that has been joined by many organizations uh, to pressure countries to join South Africa Mm -hmm. 
not to institute their own proceedings because that might complicate things and, and slow things down. We don't want to do that, but we do want other countries to declare their support and even file what's called like a, a declaration of intervention, basically saying with the court, we join or we support South mm -hmm. Africa's case. And this is important, um, not just legally. Legally, it's helpful, but also politically, because we know, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, that the United States constantly throws around its its weight in uh, pressuring countries not to take actions against Israel. And we can we can be sure that the United States' pressure on South Africa is big and it can threaten these countries with economic and other uh, repercussions for doing what they do. But if countries join together really as, as blocks, they can um, blunt the effect of the United States throwing around its political will. We've seen recently uh, statements, public statements from Turkey and Malaysia uh, supporting South Africa's actions, it would be helpful for them to lodge formal declarations of in, of intervention with the court. And that's what this coalition, not only in D.C., but around the country, there's a group actually in Detroit this morning going around to various consulates mm -hmm. in Detroit. There's in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in cities around the country where there are um, you know, consulates or embassies, they will be visited by civil society organizations bringing a petition signed by tens of thousands asking them to support South Africa. And I think that um, we can join, support these efforts, but various uh, organizations, NGOs, uh, whatever kind of group you're in, there is something that you can do to support, to help end this genocide. One of the things that we've been doing for months is encouraging people every day to take five minutes and call the White House and call your uh, representative, your member of Congress. And as a result of these calls, thousands of calls put through every single day, we've seen the number of uh, representatives, both senators and House representatives increase in their, uh, there's been an increase in those calling for a ceasefire. It started off with just a handful. Now we're up to about 65 between, the, which is not enough. There's more, but these calls are making a difference. And that's, you don't even have to be part of an organization to do that. So there's something everyone can do to help, to help end this genocide. I want to thank you, Hawaii Da'arraf, for being on True Talk. I know you are a busy lawyer and a busy woman and you have to go. I really appreciate you being on the True Talk. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for what you're doing to get out the word. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you, Hawaii no, Ahmed? Summer, it's a good interview. Um, she's doing a lot of great work and um, the mission yeah, is I going wish to be you could important. Uh, stay longer because uh, she explained this idea and the confusion between the ICJ and the and ICC and ICC that ICC has been yeah right but that ICC has been a disappointment it just seems like the only people that it pursues are people in Africa you know it goes after Sudan it goes after others well it did go after Putin maybe for the right reasons but again you know, it cannot be politicized that it only goes after uh, people, you know, that America and Europe don't like. That that That's going to be seen as a double standard. I think, uh, I know, um, like, for, I'm going to give this example of my cleaning lady who is a Brazilian oh. and was in Brazil. Okay. So I was curious to know, you know, like, is there coverage? 
uh, do does she know anything? The woman almost uh, cried and she said, we see everything, the everyday, like uh, we see the bombing, but we also see the little stories, for instance, about um, uh, like the... Um, the dead babies that trying to get them out from the rubble. She says our TV. The dead, the dead Palestinian. The dead you Palestinian know, Gaza babies. Yeah. And dead, uh, you know, Palestinians babies <laughs> under the rubble. And she says people can't believe how could this be going on for such a long time. And she was telling me, I don't know how you take it. So, uh, and she says even with the satellite uh, stations that she gets here in uh, Florida, she says mm-hmm. the whole time they're covering the story. She says when I go to American TV, it, there is hardly anything. Uh, but what I wanted to say, Ahmed, is that so many people now like are so disappointed with the U.S., so disappointed with the idea of international law or international organizations and with the U.N. And they see it, like you said, they use it only against the third world countries. All of a sudden, humanity, democracy, human rights is important when it is violated by people who are uh, dark. People of color, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. People of color, people in Asia, yeah. and, uh, so the Middle East it, and it's Africa, so, it's... And and Latin America, same thing. I mean, some of these images, it's they've never seen been seen before. As as people have been saying, it's this genocide is being live streamed. And those that are arguing saying no, it's not a genocide. Uh, genocide takes two things. One, there's intent, and on a regular basis, almost a daily basis, Israeli officials. We're talking about even people in the highest levels, ministers in Israel are calling for wiping out or ethnically cleansing Palestinians off their land. They're pushing. I saw a report yesterday that Netanyahu has been secretly, the Netanyahu government has been secretly uh, in discussions with the the Congo, Democratic uh, Republic of Congo, and to about expelling Palestinians from Gaza to the Congo. I mean, it's not even completely different culture. Not only not the that, same language. Somewhere else that, in a different continent. Fifty-two percent of the people there are under poverty line. So it's not yeah. like a flourishing country. And when you have these people coming in, they're going to be taxing the very little food and uh, housing and services they have. Fifty-two recipe. Well, that just shows you the Yahoo government doesn't care about the poverty. They just care about removing these people, depopulating Gaza, making it smaller. I think their initial plan, as you and I have discussed in the past, was to completely get them all to leave Gaza, uh, to destroy all the infrastructure that they have nothing to return back to, that Gaza is no longer livable, that there are no homes. They, mm-hmm. you know, first right no away, they start going after the hospitals. Schools. Yeah, they went after everything. They got rid of everything that where people can have sustained life. And now, you know, they just want them to be intense. And, you know, because it's being live streamed, because the Palestinian voices are being amplified and they try to shut it down so many times, but it just 96 journalists are killed. Like, imagine if unbelievable near the Ukraine. Like people listening, what do you think the U.S. reaction and the human rights groups and all these and the U.N., what would they do if they knew that Putin had killed 96 to 97 journalists? 
Right. When Putin killed, I think, I think one or two journalists, uh, or Russia did, or that they kidnapped children, right away there was immediate swift reaction. I mean, we don't have to wonder. It's, you know, from uh, Blinken to others in this current administration, they were attacking, uh, rightly so, because it's uh, against international law. But there's a different standard for these for the uh, Israeli officials. And what's so surprising to many people is that the Israeli officials in the current government there are so far to the right, right wing extremists, fanatics are running the government there, even way more to the right than the people that were on January 6th, the people that they keep attacking as insurrectionists and in, you know insurgents and that they try to carry out some sort of coup against the government. Uh, Netanyahu and his people are way worse than that. Yet Biden, who says he stands for democracy and stands for you know democratic values and is on the left, is supporting what's happening there. I mean, they're standing hand in hand shoulder to shoulder with these genocidal uh, people that are even more to the right than, uh, you know, Trump or MAGA or anyone else. So you're attacking MAGA in America and Trump supporters here, but somehow you're supporting people who are even more to the right of, uh, you know, Trump in Israel. That doesn't make sense. That's not consistent. That means it's not, um, you know, it's not based on values. This is based on something else, other interests. And people are seeing that, you know, double standards and the hypocrisy and the masks are coming off. It's just, there's no credibility left. And I think people in the State Department realize that and they keep trying to pressure the Biden yeah, administration, think, Biden, the White yes, House. Just yesterday, somebody at the White House uh, just uh, left. I think I, his name is Tarek. But I don't think Ahmed... Oops, sorry. I don't think they know uh, the uh, damage that uh, this has created. But also, I have a feeling they are playing with fire because so far, you know, uh, the people are expressing their anger uh, through demonstrations and uh, through uh, peaceful means. But, you know, what is going on is really crossed every line, crossed every red line when it comes to uh, humanity and violation of uh, the, the humanity of a human being. Uh, when you do surgery to uh, young people and to children without anesthesia, or when you do a thousand amputations for little children in Gaza without uh, any anesthesia, this is inhumane. This this is not normal. And, and why are they doing that? Because there's no because, medicine. Because there are no medicine. hospitals. There's they bomb no the hospitals. They bomb the hospitals, but also, unfortunately, they have the control over the crossing, which is only between Egypt and uh, Gaza, supposedly. But they have, uh, they can exert enough pressure on governments to prevent aid from coming in. So literally, they are killing people in front of our eyes and without uh, journalists being there, but without citizen journalism, Ahmed, uh, I don't think uh, we could have known exactly what is uh, going on. But there are areas, like this morning, I walk up to a plea from North uh, Gaza and from a physician that says, you know, uh, uh, goodbye. This might be the last uh, message because they are entering 
carpet bombing the area. So there are areas where there is no media coverage or even citizen journalism, except for a few people who from time to time are able to send WhatsApp uh, messages. So if this is over, we're going to be listening for years and years to come about atrocities uh, committed. Uh, right. The, the I mean, we have this is just what we're able to see and you know some are saying that it would take one to two years after even if the bombing stops now one to two years just to remove the rubble and it would take at least a decade if not 20 years to rebuild um, you know housing and infrastructure that uh, they really destroyed so much of it and mm-hmm. it's uh the big concern right now is because there's no hospitals, there's no clean water, there's sewage, the disease is starting to spread. We're getting into now the winter, you know, in the middle of winter, people are going to uh, get sick and they're concerned about, you know, uh, epidemics happening and disease getting out of control, not having the medicine to cure people. And a lot of times when we've seen uh, violence like this before, the people that die after the violence is, you know, sometimes double or triple what was, you know, of those that were actually killed because of uh, the violence itself. Actually, Ahmed, uh, I I just got uh, a message on uh, uh, Twitter about uh, this gentleman who is, uh, who knows Hebrew and is translating the Haaretz article that came out today and talking about the thousands of pregnant Palestinian women who Mm. are What's going to happen when the uh, when they have to deliver the babies? Well, What's that's been happen? happening. I mean, since the beginning of October seventh, there was like something like fifty thousand pregnant women, and you know we've seen reports where they were, they're delivering in the streets. And I think I've seen a report that some women were actually killed in a bulldozer drove over them um, outside the hospital. I mean, there are some horrific uh, atrocities happening there. And when these atrocities are happening and people are getting killed, first they said that they actually were killed by snipers and then they drove over their bodies. Uh, These are, you know, at least one or two uh, pregnant women. They drove over their bodies with a bulldozer. I mean, you can Google this Mm -hmm. if you want to look it up yourself, if you don't believe what I'm saying. Uh, But these are atrocities are happening on a regular basis. And it's almost like somebody had mentioned that they're committing so many atrocities that once you get to overwhelm people. It's like you can't keep up with the mm. crime. You can't keep up. It depresses you. Know, you. It, it depresses it, you. But once, like, the, first it was, you know, there was this whole big debate about uh, the hospital bombing where there was finger pointing and they're saying that, oh, it was done by um, Palestinian militants, a rocket that went astray. New York Times has confirmed that that's not the case, that it was not that specific evidence that they had provided. And meanwhile, while everybody's discussing that attack on that hospital, like five other hospitals were bombed (laughs) and they admitted that they did it. So if they've bombed all the other hospitals so far in Gaza, except maybe two or three, um, wouldn't it be consistent to also say that they made the other, that they carried out that first bombing of the hospital? And they're the same, um, this is the same military that said, that Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza, was a command center for Hamas. Now the, um, you know, the Washington Post, mm-hmm. was it the Washington Post? Yeah, yes, the Washington Post. Did a, a thorough investigation and said that they did not, there was no evidence of that. 
Al-Shifa Hospital was not the command center of Hamas, that they spent so many days and weeks making the claim that they have to get to this Al-Shifa Hospital because there's a command center center underneath it. There was never any command center. And I feel it's the like same ground, time, the New York Times. Yeah, Groundhog Day. Uh, remember the weapons, yeah, weapons of mass destruction, Iraq, and then people found out, and mm-hmm. then what happened? Uh, a million Iraqis are dead. But to our listeners, Ahmed, and we should be mentioning this is true talk on WMNF 88.5 FM. Ahmed and I are discussing what is going on in Gaza. But uh, Ahmed, I think people need to know that every day there is an image uh, put uh, on uh, social media that shows these weapons are made in America. Uh, these wep- this attack on Gaza is made possible because of our tax money. We are using our tax right. money. These bombs we have paid for and uh, it drains hell on these people from our own tax money. So if you do not like this inhumanity, all of us need to be demonstrating. All of us need to be in the streets and all of us need to be calling the White House and saying not in our name, not again, not in our name. Speaking of protest summer, there's going to be a mass protest, a march on Washington. I think this is going to be like the third or fourth main one. It's going to be on a Saturday, January 13th in Washington, D.C. There'll actually be buses leaving Tampa yeah. heading, heading that way. On uh, Well, the buses will leave January 12th, which is Friday, around 5 o'clock. They'll get to D.C. the next morning and the... Uh, the rally or the protests will be on the 13th. This will likely be the largest. Um, Are you going? People should go. Um, I'm going to try to go. I mean, this is a historic time. We have to take a stand. I, We can't. Our tax money cannot be spent to be killing children like this um, so far away where these people don't pose a direct threat to the United States and our tax money is being misused in this way which will only create more violence, more instability in the region. You know, we can't just sit home and say, well, you know, my voice is not going to make a difference. We have to speak out against it. We have to take a stand, be on the right side of history. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's so many people that try to make this out to be about religion or anti-Semitism or, you know, hating Jewish people. Summer and I, we've had this show now for over 20 years. We have Jewish people. We have Christian people. We have Muslim people. Um, Israel for us. Atheist, we've Israel for us has never an occupation has never been about Judaism. Um, Judaism is a respected religion. In fact, we can't be Muslim and faithful to our faith without respecting and acknowledging and appreciating um, Judaism and Christianity. It's just part of our faith. It's part of our religion to you know recognize. Their prophets are our prophets. Yes, we recognize that that they are our prophets as well. That their revealed they books the are Musa our revealed salam. books. That's what how we yeah. address it. Every time, yeah, every time we talk about Moses, we say, peace be upon him. Same thing about Jesus and others. All the prophets in the mention of the Bible. So it's not about religion. It's about the occupation, and it's about the land, and it's about the ethnic cleansing. That's what it's about. However, people that want to conflate the issue, and they don't want to discuss it and talk about the occupation and the atrocities happening there, they want to make it about anti-Semitism, which actually... 
undermines real anti-Semitism mm-hmm. and undermines real uh, hatred. There are people out there and there is real anti-Semitism that exists. However, criticizing Israel and criticizing the killing of children in Gaza is not anti-Semitism. Let's just get past that. I mean, we saw what happened with Harvard and the president of Harvard there. They tried to get them, you know, get her out because of anti-Semitism. And when she didn't, you know, kneel down and accept the resignation and Harvard stood behind her, they came up with this fabricated controversy of plagiarism. And this is a well-accomplished, you know, African-American woman that reached the highest level of the most important university in the country. And because she would not, you know, submit to this fabricated controversy that somehow that, you know, people are calling for genocide on campus, which is not true. When protesters are out there, whether they're in Washington or in other places, are saying, end the occupation, cease fire now, stop the killing of children, free Palestinians, that is not calling for the murder or genocide against Jews. Nobody's calling for that. They're calling for the end of the murder of Palestinians. Don't you agree, Summer? I agree. Uh, everybody is uh, is uh, saying we want to uh, free uh, Palestine from the apartheid regime, from uh, occupation. Why not just have democracy? Why not have respect for law? Why don't you just have a system uh, maybe similar to what we have in the U.S., who anybody can live in peace and be and uh, run for election and let the people uh, speak? So I think, may, Ahmed, maybe we and are... practice their religion and practice their religion <laughs> freely, worship as they've always mm-hmm. coexisted. The problem started with this plan to take over somebody else's land and kick them off the land. And because make of them what stateless. other people in Europe did to them, not the Arabs. They lived with the Arabs uh, throughout history. But maybe for centuries. For centuries. We're running out. I will, I'm keeping track of time. Oh, you are, you know, uh, you're, yes. the, you're the timer here. So. I am the timekeeper. Yeah, I'm the timekeeper. We have a few seconds left. Um, for those listening to us, because now we're actually streaming online, but for those listening to us live, this is uh, WMNF. Uh, Tampa and uh, True Talk. This is a True Talk show hosted on WMNF. Uh, after this is The Scoop, which is uh, brought to you by WMNF. And uh, stay here for great programming in the future. I think we have a little bit, about 30 seconds left, Summer. But um, if you want to have remind the last word. Our listeners, soon we're going to be uh, fundraising uh, for WMNF. But I guess we can talk about it next week, Ahmed. And uh, I hope uh, I'll see you next week, inshallah. Maybe in Washington, D.C. Well, maybe. Hopefully you can make it. WMNF Tampa, uh, this is True Talk. Stay tuned for the scoop after this. Uh, we're going to play some, I think, some music because we're not sure exactly when that's coming on. Um, <laughs> but have a great weekend. We're experimenting with something new or we're streaming on Summer's Twitter account and we're trying to do this. So um, I hope it's going to work. Yeah, 